London, England, home to everyone who is anyone, from Paddington Bear to the Queen. This great capital has stood at the forefront of industry and culture for a millennia. Best known for our dry wit and wet weather, it is really the people and history of London that make this city so great. We're bringing you a comprehensive guide of all things to see and do in London. From food and drink to unique local attractions, follow us on a journey through this capital steeped in history and discover the hidden wonders of this magnificent city. This is Discover London. I'm Olivia Cox. And I'm Derek O'Reilly. And together we're going to take you on a tour of London. Today we're going to visit some fascinating places in the area of Holborn and Bloomsbury, an area that contains some of London's finest squares and buildings. Bloomsbury boasts some of the most splendid squares, gardens and parks in the whole of London. The major development of the squares that we see today started in about 1800. The 5th Duke of Bedford removed Bedford House and developed land to the north with Russell Square at its centrepiece. Most of the square's gardens are open to the general public. These blooming and charming pockets of green spaces are steeped in history and are closely associated with philanthropists, intellectuals, writers, artists, bohemians, freethinkers and radicals. Russell Square was built in the 18th century. The square is named after the Russells, who are the Earls and Dukes of Bedford and are the largest landowners in Bloomsbury. It is perhaps the most famous square in Bloomsbury, and the street lamps around the square carry the Bedford family coat of arms. Nowadays, the northwest corners of the square are largely occupied by the University of London, while the Grand Russell Hotel, built in 1898, dominates the eastern side. The square is also home to only one of 13 cabman shelters remaining in London. A short walk away is the British Museum and the Brutalist Grade 2 listed Brunswick Centre. The square was re-landscaped in 2002 and now contains fountains, gardens and a tea room, providing a renowned sense of calm within the thriving city. My name's Louisa Price and I'm the curator of the Charles Dickens Museum. It's based in the house that Dickens lived in from 1837 to 1839. It's at 48 Doughty Street in Bloomsbury. And Dickens moved in here at a time in his life where he was just making himself known as an author in London. And over the time that he lived here, he finished Pickwick Papers, Oliver Twist, he wrote Nicholas Nickleby and lots of uh, journalistic pieces as well. The lovely thing about the museum is that it is a historic home open from top to bottom and so you can visit every single room as it would have been at the time that Dickens lived here. As we come into the house, you can go straight into the entrance hall and on the wall you can see letters written by Dickens about everyday life relating to his home. There is one letter though that's related to the lease of 48 Doughty Street to Dickens and the thing I love about that letter is that it refers to Dickens as the author of the Picnic Papers and I think this is 1837, he's just about to move into the house and not everybody really knows who he is but two and a half years later, my goodness, he was a proper celebrity in London. 
in the morning room, Catherine Dickens's wife would have spent much of her time. And it's in here that you can see a painting of Catherine in the 1840s. And if you look very, very closely, you can see her engagement ring just peeking out. And it's the same ring that Dickens describes in David Copperfield as the ring that David gives to his fiancée, Dora. Down the stairs in the servants' quarters, and it's here that you can see the kitchen, the scullery space, but also right at the back, you can see the wash house. In this space, we've got the original wash house copper. And this is a very special object because not long after Dickens left Doughty Street, he wrote a piece called A Christmas Carol. And in it, Dickens describes the Cratchit family boiling up a Christmas pudding in their wash house copper. And it fits the bill, it fits the description of what we've got here at Doughty Street. Here we've got one of our prized pieces of furniture, the desk that Dickens used later on in his life. On this desk, he would have written Great Expectations, A Tale of Two Cities, Our Mutual Friend. And beside this desk, you can also see original manuscripts of Nicholas Nickleby and of Oliver Twist. And it's in the master bedroom that the Dickens's two eldest daughters, Mary and Katie, would have been born. And then in the corner, you can see a little display case. And in that is a piece from Dickens's journal, Household Words. And it's the first article that he published about his separation from Catherine. What was unbeknownst to the public was that Dickens had actually met a younger woman called Ellen Turnan, and he continued to have a relationship with her um, throughout the rest of his life. You can see Dickens's last will and testament on display here, and uh, a rose that was left on his body after he passed away in 1870. Now it's time to visit my favourite Turkish restaurant in Holborn and Bloomsbury, the Taz. My name is Aslıhan Işık. I have been working here for eight years. My current title is assistant manager. The name of our restaurant is Taz. Taz is our traditional cooking pot used to prepare casserole dishes. Our first restaurant was opened in 1999 in Waterloo by Mr. Önder Şahan. Uh, today we have two cafes, three bars and eight restaurants. All of them are located in the central of London. Restaurant is designed Turkish style. In summertime we open outside as well. We serve Anatolian food. Uh, food is prepared daily with fresh organic ingredients. On our menu we have a range of meals such as grilled dishes, homemade casseroles, seafood option, and more than 30 different meze dishes. Our grilled meats are most popular dishes on the menu. As you know, Turkey's reputation for serving delicious kebabs. travels around London, we are visiting many fascinating places, but I think where we are now is up there with the best of them, and this gentleman will tell us all about it. Hello. Hi, so I'm Jack Ashby, I'm the manager of the Grant Museum of Zoology at University College London. The, the Grant Museum was put together to teach the first courses in zoology in England in the 1820s when University College London was founded and it's a collection of about 68,000 skeletons and skulls and animals in jars from across the animal kingdom and across time to be taught with but mostly for the public to visit. And how far back do some of your exhibitions go? The teaching goes back to 1820s, but it's actually only been open to the public since 1999. So the ex exhibitions don't go back very long, but the objects, well, the oldest is about half a billion years old. 
was put together by a man called Robert Grant, who was the first professor of zoology in England. He was the man who taught Charles Darwin evolution before he came to, to London, they were both in Edinburgh. And this museum would have been the first place that evolution was taught at an English university. So do you have many examples of animals which are extinct here? We do. Just because of the age of the collection, we've got things that weren't extinct when, in the 1820s that are extinct now. So we have the world's rarest skeleton, which is a, a quagga, which is a, a not very stripy zebra. Um, oh, right. And they went extinct in 1883, and there's only seven or possibly six skeletons anywhere in the world. Ours is the only one on display in the UK. We've also got a big collection of dodo bones and um, a big collection of Tasmanian tigers or thylacines. Conservation is such a huge area of work at the moment to protect threatened uh, species, and museum collections have fantastically useful resources to assist with that. Yeah, it's about 7% of the collection on display. Um, is that all? 7%? Yeah, which is actually very high for museums. Most, most museums are less oh, than really? 1%. So uh, there's more specimens on display here than in uh, than at the Natural History Museum. Is there something that visitors seem to be drawn to? Definitely, the visitors' favourite is our is our jar of moles, which is oh, I kind noticed of, that. Kind of like a sweetie jar. It's not a sweetie <laughs> jar. It looks like a sweetie jar with uh, eighteen moles stuffed inside, and it's really caught the visitors' imagination. We're open Monday to Saturday, one to five, um, and then we have a big public program in the evenings and um, other dates as well. We have treasure hunts, we have classic film nights, we do panel games. It's quite a fun and exciting programme, but it's all based around real research that's going on at UCL. Oh, wow. So we kind of create a bit of a, a meeting of the researchers and the, and the public in pretty informal, light-hearted way. Tavistock Square takes its name from the Marquis of Tavistock. Titles bestowed on the eldest sons of the Duke of Bedford, who owned the square as part of their estate and developed it in the 1820s. Charles Dickens lived here in 1851, and the gardens themselves have become to be regarded as peace gardens. In 1968, a bronze statue of Mahatma Gandhi was placed in the centre, and a cherry tree planted the year before stands in memory for the victims of the Hiroshima bombing. In 1994, conscientious objectors were commemorated by the laying of inscribed stones. There is a bust of Virginia Woolf, and Dame Louisa Aldrich Blake, one of the first women to enter medicine, is also commemorated. Coincidentally... Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It is home to the headquarters of the British Medical Association housed in a magnificent Grade II listed building designed by Sir Edward Lutyens in 1911. The wide streets of Bloomsbury make it very accessible, 
Its close proximity to major rail terminals, Euston, King's Cross and St Pancras, led to it being chosen as a designated media hub during the London 2012 Olympic Games. We are now off to visit another fabulous building which I believe to be the spiritual home of the area. I'm Anne Stevens. I'm the vicar of St Pancras Church on the Euston Road. Um, I've been here just under four years and I'm the first woman to be the vicar here, which is, is uh, a source of great pride to me. St Pancras Church opened in 1822 and it was quite controversial in its day, partly because it cost so much money. Um, at the time it was the second most expensive church in London after Christopher Wren's St Paul's Cathedral. And they'd raised some of the money from a tax on local people which wasn't very popular at all. The other reason was that the architecture was so controversial with the Greek statues, our famous Caryatids, our pagan goddesses who stand over the doors to the crypt, guarding the entrance to the underworld. So people, of course, were saying, well, that's not very Christian at all. But this has always been a place where the church meets the world, so we're very proud of our caryatids. The pillars from the West End are matched by the five pillars over the altar. Victorian stained glass was added later. A very large gallery where I believe the children used to sit in Victorian times. The poor were upstairs and the, the wealthy were downstairs, possibly because of the smell. With very keen to do all we can to promote both music and art at, at every level. The crypt underneath the church was used for burials from the 1820s to the 1850s when burials were banned in central London. The crypt has now been developed into the Crypt Art Gallery. About a third of the space is used for exhibitions from all sorts of artists, from the very experienced to those who are at art college just starting out. And again, most of the exhibitions are free. I think St Pancras Church is, is a flagship church for liberal Anglican values here in central London. And where we are, that's a really crucial part of our ministry, to welcome people, whatever their education or race or sexuality or what they believe even. We're here to ask questions together, to explore faith together, not to tell people what to do. So come to St Pancras, we'll give you a very warm welcome. Bloomsbury was one of the earliest of London squares, developed in the late 17th century by the 4th Earl of Southampton for the wealthy upper classes. It was originally called Southampton Square and is also just a short walk away from the British Museum. It is perhaps most famously associated with the Bloomsbury set, who were an influential group of associated English writers, intellectuals, philosophers and artists. In the gardens of the square is a statue of Charles James Fox, the former parliamentarian. And the main inhabitants these days are commercial, including the famous Le Coudon Bleu School of Cookery. Bonjour, welcome to the Cordon Bleu. My name is Chef Eric, I'm head of cuisine. The Cordon Bleu has a very rich history. Uh, we actually last year celebrated our 120 years. Started as a magazine, okay, with Marc Distel. Um, and he obviously grew into a school over the years. Currently, this is our new premises in Bloomsbury. We have been there since uh, 2012. I've been here myself working for the Cordon Bleu 10 years. So I've seen the transformation from the old school to the new school. We obviously surrounded by beautiful buildings and it's a beautiful area. We are many teachers teaching here. 
Each of them has probably 20 to 30 years of experience. So this is all given to the students. As you can see next to us, we have a basic class which is currently running. Uh, so they've just started only a few weeks ago and they're already on the, looks like, preparation of chickens. I'm Julie Walsh and I'm the head pastry chef at the Cordon Bleu London. Uh, I've worked with Cordon Bleu for 20 years now, both in London and around the world. Uh, at the Cordon Bleu we teach techniques, not recipes. Um, we are uh, very traditional in our methods. We show students by demonstration and then we let them practice and repeat until they are proficient at the technique. Once you know a technique, you can apply it to many recipes. The recipe changes from location to location, the technique never does. We have many uh, one-day courses um, aimed at specific techniques. So, for example, you could come in and learn viennoiserie, how to make croissant and Danish pastries. You could come in and learn how to work with chocolate, or even how to make macaron. Um, every year, the Cordon Bleu offers a scholarship for somebody who uh, not necessarily has um, any experience, but has the passion and shows that they are dedicated to learning to cook and have the passion to come and study with us. A lucky winner, basically, will be able to uh go out with a top price, which is basically 50 months accommodation and nutrition, obviously, at, uh, at the Cordon Bleu. It's worth in excess of £30,000. It really does change people's lives. It's a fantastic opportunity. This is about as good as it gets in terms of culinary education facilities. The world-famous James Smith & Son umbrella shop was founded in 1830, and it is still owned and run as a family business. For 175 years, the company has been making umbrellas, sticks and canes for both ladies and gentlemen, and their reputation as the home of the London umbrella is well justified. The historic and beautiful shop is on New Oxford Street in the heart of Holborn and is a stunning reminder of the Victorian period. The shop retains the original fittings designed and made by the master craftsman employed by the business and is a work of art in itself. It has remained virtually unaltered in 140 years. On our way to our next destination, we will pass the statue of Prince Albert at Holborn Circus. It is known to taxi drivers as the politest statue in London, due to Albert sitting on his horse, docking his cap to passers-by. My name is Caro Howell and I'm the director of the Foundling Museum. The Foundling Museum tells the story of the Foundling Hospital, which was the UK's first children's charity and also its first public art gallery. And the Foundling Hospital was established in 1739 as a home for babies who would otherwise have been abandoned on the streets of London. They would have been called Foundlings, which is where the name originated. The children's charity continues today as the adoption charity Corum. And we, the museum, show the remarkable collection of art which was donated in the 18th century by painters and sculptors and plasterers and carvers, amazing range of work. It was William Hogarth, his idea to, in a sense, use art as a way of bringing people to the building. This was a huge draw to people. So the art that lines the wall are by some of the great artists of the 18th century. So you have 21-year-old Thomas Gainsborough, Joshua Reynolds, Thomas Hudson, Alan Ramsey. It's really the beginnings of the, the British art world as we understand it today. We also show an extraordinary collection of archive objects from the 18th century that tell the story of the life of the hospital and the foundlings themselves. And amongst these are tiny little everyday objects that mothers left with their babies 
as a way of identifying them because their names were changed when they came into the hospital. So she would leave with her children something as simple as a nut, little bits of jewellery, a pot of rouge, a spyglass. We have the children's uniforms, the cutlery that they used in the dining room, one of the beds from the hospital. These are incredibly poignant objects that really reveal everyday lives in the 18th century. In the picture gallery is Hogarth's great painting of Thomas Coram. It's one of the greatest portraits he ever painted. Um, it shows Thomas Coram, the great philanthropist whose idea it was to set up the hospital, who had to campaign for over 17 years to get permission to set the hospital up. All the other men in the room, who are all governors, are very smartly dressed with their full wigs on. And uh, Coram was a shipbuilder by trade, and he's got his ruddy, sea and sunblasted face. His feet don't quite touch the floor. He's got his trademark red, slightly scruffy coat on, and it's a fantastic painting of a man of extraordinary moral integrity. In the 18th century, if you wanted to set up a charity, you needed the permission of the king. So he needed all of the great and the good to sign petitions to say that they were behind this cause and put it to the attention of the king so that he would grant what's called a royal charter. George II, by the grace of God, and if you look at the portrait of Thomas Coram upstairs in the picture gallery, this is what he's holding in his hand. He's, the, the charter is on the table and he's holding in his hand the great seal. And it's a wonderful testament to 17 years of campaigning, to not giving up, to eventually getting um, public opinion behind you. <laughs>